Good morning. Today's reading, gospel reading, comes from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. This is one part of Jesus' great prayer, which is said to be the greatest prayer recorded in the Bible. Jesus, knowing his fate and accepting what is about to come, is praying for his disciples. He knows that he'll be leaving them soon. So let us hear the word of the Lord. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given them is from you. For the words that you have gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on the world's behalf. (coughs) Because they gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Our second New Testament lesson comes from the book we call the Acts of the Apostles. It's a passage that I don't remember the first time I read it, but I know it was as an adult, because for many years I had not read it. And then for many years I had read through it without really ever paying attention to it. But lo and behold, as I spent more time with it recently, I found it to be a real treasure. Perhaps you will find it as well. Here then, beginning at verse 15 in chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together the crowd numbered about 120 persons and said, friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, 
who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two, Joseph, called Bersabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Perhaps you watched it because you love to listen to any discussion among a group of people who are excellent at their craft, no matter what the craft is, as they talk about it. Or perhaps you were drawn to it because you were a fan of the documentary filmmaker David Guggenheim, or of rock guitars. Or perhaps, like me, you simply stumbled upon it as you were flipping through the television stations one evening. In any case, the documentary, It Might Get Loud, is fascinating as it tells the story of three famous guitarists and shares their conversations with each other. Jimmy Page, Jack White, and one known as The Edge. In the one scene, The Edge, whose real name is David Evans, walks up to a bulletin board in an empty hallway in his old school, Mount Temple Comprehensive High School in Dublin. That's Ireland, not Bucks County. He recalls how in 1976, a 14-year-old boy named Larry Mullen posted a sign on the bulletin board asking if anyone was interested in forming a band. Six people responded. One quit after the first practice. One quit about a week later. A third, Evans' older brother, who was much older than the others and in college, quit after a year. The four remained as a group, in a group that was first called Feedback, and then The Hype, and then U2. And ever since, U2 has consisted of those four young men. We were really, really bad, he recalls in the documentary. And that was 42 years and 150 million records sold ago. And then looking at the bulletin board, he pauses before saying with, with a touch of amazement, 
could have been a banker. Divine destiny and human choices. We are all products of a thousand decisions that have led us to where we are today. And like a Dublin-born rock guitarist, we can marvel at choices not made, paths not taken. As Christians who believe that there is a purpose to life, we believe that our choices and decisions matter and should not just be left to chance. Which makes this often overlooked passage in Acts both important and puzzling. Here at the end of Acts 1, we're at an in-between time. In between Jesus' resurrection and ascension on the one hand, and Pentecost and the church becoming public and the Holy Spirit giving birth to the church. It is a critical and difficult time for those early believers. Not only is their leader, Jesus, no longer physically present with them, but one of the inner circle that Jesus himself specially recruited, Judas, has left them. Not only left them, but he betrayed Jesus to the authorities. Now has come the time to replace him. Because 12 is a significant number for those early believers. The 12 disciples were to mirror the 12 tribes of ancient Israel. Peter, the spokesman for the other 10, spells out the criteria for replacing Judas. And he does it to a small group of about 120, Acts tells us, gathering with him in Jerusalem. The replacement is to be one of the men who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, that is Jesus' baptism by John, until the day when Jesus was taken up from us. Later, there will be women leaders, such as Lydia and Priscilla and Phoebe, who all appear in Paul's letters in early church. But for now, the inner circle is going to be male. And it's going to be those people who have been with Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. This decision is critically important. Leadership of a group that's been badly hurt by the betrayal of one of their leaders. Two men meet these criteria, we are told. One named Justice and one named Matthias. About them, other than this one passage, we know absolutely nothing. They're only mentioned here. And what we know is that both meet the criteria. And then after prayer, Matthias is the one chosen by the casting of lots. Establishing careful criteria, praying about it, that makes perfect sense in the process of choosing a leader. But casting lots? When lots were cast, what we know is that stones were specially marked. They were put in a vessel. The vessel was shaken, and the one that popped out was the one that was the chosen one. Casting lots, it feels like rolling dice. Is that any way to choose a leader? What's going on here? One way to understand the casting of lots is that God somehow specially intervened so that the stone that God wanted was the one that popped out. And surely it takes no great imagination or stretch of our theology to think that the God who's able to raise someone from the dead probably can make a particular stone come out of a vessel. But there's also another way of understanding what happens here in Acts 1. 
Perhaps lots are cast as the way of choosing between the two because it does not really matter to God which one is chosen. Not because the decision is not important, it is, but because the outcome of the decision is not that important. Both men are qualified. Casting of lots, then, is simply a fair process for choosing one over the other, like flipping a coin or drawing the short straw, because God can work equally well with either one. Casting of lots to choose Matthias over justice. What does this decision process from first century Palestine have to tell us living in 21st century Pennsylvania? Surely our choices are important and it's not all up to chance. I mean, I can tell you that when it came down to deciding whether to marry Carrie, I didn't sort of flip a coin, heads yes, tails no. <laughs> so what does Acts 1 have to say to us about aligning our decisions with God's will? Philip Carey teaches theology down the road at Eastern University. He came and spoke a few years ago during one of our Lenten programs. He recently wrote about the great anxiety that many of his students find or have about finding God's will for your life. As Carrie explains, the way students talk about it, God's will is out there waiting to be found like the one person we're convinced that God has picked for them to marry. But how do you know where to look? And how do you know when you found it? What happens if you mistake the will of God and don't marry the one God has chosen for you? Or what happens if you only get God's second best will for your life? As he writes, a whole boatload of anxieties is tied up with this notion of finding God's will. And it's not just an issue for his students or for young adults generally. Listen closely, as I've been doing the last couple of weeks with this text in mind, and you'll hear earnest Christians of all ages talk about God's plan for their lives as if it was a single blueprint or recipe custom designed by God from the very beginning for their lives. While it can be very comforting to think that there is such a plan, it can be also be a terrible burden to us to think about what it means because we know we are imperfect and we make imperfect choices, and we don't want to blow God's plan for us. The truth is that God's plan is not some secret code that we have to break, like a da Vinci code. As Carrie puts it, God's will is not the kind of thing you, must, you have to look for and find, and therefore it's not the thing you can easily miss. What you can do is disobey God's will. We have a word for that. It's called sin. But God's will, rightly understood, is right out there in the open for all to see in the Bible. For example, from Micah, he has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Where Jesus told the lawyer who asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. God has told us what is good. 
what is God's will for, a li- for our lives. But of course, there's so much to fill in, so much to, to, to help us move from those general principles to the specific situations of our lives. And so God gives us not just a couple of verses, but the whole of Scripture so that we can grow in wisdom and love. God gives us prayer so that we can ask and find guidance. God gives us a community of faith. There are people there who've gone before us and can share from their experience. And there are people walking beside us who can provide an outside, a separate perspective, and therefore help us as we try to find God's will for our lives. When we have an important decision or choice to make, it is important to ask the right questions and have the right priorities. For example, when it comes to choosing a college, if you're looking for the one with the best sports team or the best party reputation, you probably won't find the one that will give you the best education. When choosing the person to whom you're going to commit, if we focus primarily on looks or popularity, rather than on character or values, including a shared faith, then it very well may not go the distance. And in choosing a job, if all we ask about is pay and pay no attention to the kind of work, whether we can find purpose in it, and the kind of work environment that is there, then we're less likely to experience the will of God. Our faith should affect how we go about making a decision, and we know that. This is the rub. We are not perfect, and the decisions we make will not be perfect. And so there's a second thing to keep in mind when we're afraid of making imperfect choices and thereby blowing God's plan for our lives. As the prophet Jeremiah puts it, God has plans for us, plans for our well-being. But God is too creative to be limited to one plan. In other words, there's more than one way to reach the destination God has in mind for us. Or even more radical, consider this. Perhaps sometimes God is waiting on us to make a decision before God decides what God wants to accomplish through us. Craig Barnes is the president of Princeton Seminary, and he recently wrote about a meeting with one of his students whom he calls Jill. She was a final year student. She had two great offers, one from a church in Chicago, one in upper New York. And she came seeking his advice as an older pastor. He really appreciated her giving that characterization. He noted that the churches and positions were both very similar, both very positive things. And he remarked to her that she should be grateful to have such a wonderful choice when so many of her other fellow graduating classmates had not found one church who was seeking them. But she clearly was greatly burdened by the choice. What Barnes wanted to tell her, he writes, is that I doubt that God is up all night worried about this choice. He wanted to say that not because he didn't care and not because he thought God didn't care. No, he wanted to say this to Jill because her vision of what God is able to do by God's grace and power was too restricted, too narrow. As Barnes pointed out, both options were good ones. They were both places where she could serve out her calling. Did she really believe, he wrote, 
that God is thinking, I hope she doesn't go to Chicago because I certainly can't work with her there. Sometimes there is a sharp distinction to be made about the right path to choose the right way to go. Sometimes, like the rock guitarist and the poet Frost, we can look back on the path chosen and say, it has made all the difference. But sometimes we can be paralyzed by choices and decisions because we're so afraid of making a mistake and taking the wrong fork in the road, or we spend so long trying to decide if she's the right one that there never is a right one. As Barnes puts it, when it comes to forks in the road, God owns all the roads. God can work with Jill in Chicago or New York just as God could work with Justice or Matthias as a 12th apostle. And God can work in and through our choices to fulfill God's purposes even when we do not make the perfect choice. Indeed, what is truly amazing about God's grace and power is, as C.S. Lewis put it, God can use even the wrong choice to get you to the right place. We just see it before this passage. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is killed and saves the world. So friends, when it comes to the important decisions in our lives, as individuals and as, and as a congregation, let us indeed seek the will of God. Let us establish the criteria, order the pri priorities we need to follow as outlined in the Bible. Let us pray with open hands and open hearts so that we seek to do what God wants us to do and not simply get God to endorse what we want to do. And let us pay attention and listen to others so that we might benefit from the collective wisdom in this room and in the community of faith. But most of all, let us trust in the grace and power of God because like a creative artist and resourceful tinkerer, our God is capable of transforming even our imperfect choices and wrong decisions into something good. For though we know virtually nothing about Justice and Matthias, just as we know virtually nothing about all of the ordinary men and women through the centuries who carried the gospel from one generation to the next, this we know. In Acts 1, there were 120 Christians there with Peter in Jerusalem, and today there are more than 2 billion across the globe. This we also know. Our God is an amazing God who can do great th things through ordinary people, through ordinary people then like a Justice or Matthias, or through ordinary people now, like a Carter or Carrie, a Tom or Sharon, an Ashley or a Jack. So let us seek to do God's will, knowing that though our decisions and choices will never be perfect, when we open our lives to God, God, the great tinkerer, can tinker with those decisions and, those li and our lives to accomplish God's great plan. Thanks be to God.
to such a wondrous God. Amen. And let us stand and affirm our faith together with the words from the scriptures. This is the good news which we have received, in which we stand, and by which we are saved, if we hold it fast, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared first to the women, then to Peter, and to the twelve, and then to many faithful witnesses. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is our Lord and our God. Amen. Amen.